Hi, everyone. This is Fraser Rice with the Fraser Rice Podcast. Today we have William Wedig, a local director who's been involved with animation, horror movies, and a bunch of other different projects in film and television. William, welcome aboard. Hi, thank you. So tell us a little bit more about yourself. Where are you from? Well, I actually grew up in uh, southeastern Ohio. It's a, it's a small town called Married, Ohio. And, you know, I lived there until I was about 18 years old, but I was always interested in film. And I knew that in order to really do what I wanted to do and get where I wanted to go, I needed to end up in either New York or Los Angeles. So a friend of mine that I was growing up with had moved to Queens. And basically, his brother-in-law was a filmmaker named Josh Crook. And they invited me to come to New York. Were you one of those people who had a Super 8 growing up and uh, you were creating your own little masterpieces or redoing Star Wars or something like that? Um, I mean, I picked up a camera probably around age 11 or 12. And at that point, it had advanced to Hi8 tapes, which were the small and, and like mini, I think it was VHSC was the tape format. Right. You know, we shot these little films either for school projects or just for fun. And that was really how I got into it. But going into high school, there were a group of older kids who were like juniors and seniors when I was a freshman, and they showed me how to edit VCR to VCR. So actually, a lot of my earliest work, you know, in my high school work was done that way, actually editing VCR to VCR, which is a very crude process, ends up with like degenerated footage. It ends up with edits that are not fully formed. And I think all of those screenings at a young age sitting through, you know, somebody's dialogue getting cut off at the wrong moment or somebody's line being too big of a pause before they spoke kind of thing. I think that actually taught me a lot about pacing and a lot about audience response. So you were David Fincher before David Fincher was David Fincher in some ways. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, I, I love that comparison. Um, I think that... Uh, you know, I was 16 or 17 and I didn't I didn't know what I was doing. I was learning as I was going along and those films are, are you know, pretty crude work. But that said, you know, I always had a knack for it and I picked it up early and I continued with it and I'm still doing it, you know, 18 years later. You got to be more efficient with those processes, I'm sure, because you didn't want to be sitting there tape to tape next to each other with the, <laughs> with the VHSs and doing that. As you got more efficient with it, how did that help your style a little bit? Were you able to take more chances? I mean, yeah, you, you develop methods. You know, as you go along, you develop methods. We weren't doing a lot of lighting. Sound was all on-camera microphones. I mean, they're very, when I say they're crude, like, I mean, they're pretty crude. But yeah, you develop processes. At one point, I learned that I could actually cut a montage to one tape. And then by using like a $6 wire that I bought from Radio Shack, I could plug that in and dub music over top of a montage that I cut. So I actually was able to start building music into my projects at a time when, you know, it was pre-video editing. Computers, you know, weren't really up to the task until the end of my high school career. So, you know, I was developing techniques kind of on my own prior to even going to film school, studying this, or having any sort of like strong filmmaker mentor or anything in that way. Well, that sounds a lot like Sam Raimi in Evil Dead. He he just, he had his stuff. He had willing people with him in a car and a location and just went at it. Well, yeah, that's, and that's actually how I made my, uh, my thesis film in college, um, which was called Rise of the Dead. And uh, 
that film was, you know, it was a $20,000 horror film that I made as a student film. You know, it was a a feature length film that we ended up selling to Lionsgate. And I think on that film, basically all that we kind of spent money on was was food, gas and camera rental. Some of the technology now is is really cheap um, and you can buy a pretty solid camera for like a thousand dollars that you can do a lot with. And at that time, it was like, no, these things still cost $50,000. And if you want good lenses, that costs another $100,000. But that was how I actually made that film, was just kind of casting a couple people running away and going to uh, to make that film. So you're in New York now. Take us a little bit through what you've been doing since you landed here. So I came to New York in 2002. And through my friend and his brother-in-law, which his name's Josh Crook of the Crook Brothers. It's Josh and Jeff Crook. And... We all worked together for a long time on a lot of independent features, Um, and they were very much came from a similar background with me, like, we have a camera, let's go shoot a movie, we'll be the actors, let's make this thing. And over a period of about probably 15, 20 years, I don't know, they started probably in the earlier mid-90s, we've had... I don't know how many films. It's probably been 15, 16, 17 feature films. Josh directed a film called La Soga that was in Toronto that I was post-supervisor on. Jeff actually produced two shows, one called Alien Dawn, and the other one was a show that I directed called Team Toon. Through their mentorship was really how I came to become a filmmaker and, and get a lot of my experience. Beyond that, you know, I directed the kids show for Cartoon Network called uh, Team Toon. It's out on Netflix now. And uh, I've done a lot of branded content. I was a series director on a, a Sports Illustrated comedy series with pro athletes. I did that with a producer director named Pete Mentuski. You know, it's been sort of a long stretch. I'm I'm incredibly, incredibly busy. Um, almost more busy than I want to be, but I'd rather be more busy than less. You know, and no question about that. Yeah, the, 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 sitting on the couch waiting for the phone to ring is no fun. Yeah, and as a freelancer, you can hit dry spells. You know, and since I float from either passion projects to freelance, you know, editing or directing work, you know, you can hit those dry spells. And I've just been lucky enough that I've not had too many breaks. That's a really nice place to be. When do you know you have a project you're interested in directing? What tickles your fancy on that front? If you're not working on somebody else's, what are you doing on the passion projects? Are you writing them as well, or are you able to link up with other talent? You know, it it kind of depends. For my passion projects, I probably go through a bit more of a selection process. For my work, you know, for my paid work, it tends to be more of, well, what has a budget? What's available? You right. know, um, You know, there are projects that come along that are greenlit, that are happening, that I don't necessarily think that I'm right for. I've worked editing-wise for live events and things like that, but usually I'm cutting prepackaged material or producing prepackaged material. So you might watch a sports show, which is primarily a live event, but then it goes to the profile on the athlete or it goes to pre-edited, pre-packaged, pre-built video section. I work primarily in that. Um... I don't necessarily do live edit, live switching, you know, cutting between the multiple cameras. I don't do live direction. So those are the kind of projects that I might turn away from. But I've done everything from feature films to television narrative, music videos, branded material, corporate videos, you know, architectural profiles. Um, you know, it sort of swings a wide gamut. And I almost think that that hurts me a little bit when booking jobs because they don't know where I land. Right. You know, it's hard for them to pinpoint and be like, oh, that's the guy who does horror films. 
well, my last film was an art house indie drama and my kids show is like live action and animation. So, you know, you go, oh, wait, does he work with kids? Well, no, but his other film's a horror film. No, it's a, you know? it's a constant problem. Niche marketing is how you get known, but then you get boxed in and let's say animated features aren't popular, then suddenly, wait a minute, my phone's not ringing again. What's going on here? Uh, yeah. I, I can understand that. Um, when it's not sort of a little bit more commercially oriented, uh, when you're reading a screenplay, for instance, how do you know when it's good? And maybe a follow-up question to that as well is, if it's good, how do you determine whether it's for you or not? The reality is that there's a lot of screenplays out there that are not good for one reason or another. Um, I like movies to have, uh, to move quickly. Um, that is to say, I don't like them to be uh, generic on the nose. I like them to be... I like them to be rich and uh, and efficient. So if I'm reading a screenplay and I feel like, you know, okay, the pace of the story is not where I like it to be, that's something that I can fix, you know, through rewrites or through a process. I like my characters to be dynamic. I like the subject matter to be challenging, dynamic. I mean, I'm interested in so many different stories. It's really hard to kind of pinpoint what I'm looking for. That said, I like efficient stories. I like rich characters. Uh, I like movies that make you think. I guess I could say this. I like films that make you tackle sort of larger, you know, larger questions in the human psyche. You know, what is your family? What is, uh, what do you value in life? How do you say, like my last film, Forged, was a question basically about how do you find forgiveness? How do you say I'm sorry? Or how do you make a bond which, you know, is probably an impossible bond to to sort of make happen. And it all deals with the human condition at its core. And so how do you assemble the team around that? How do you interact with the writers and producers and talent? You have your own working style. How do you make that work with people who come from a different place, have different attributes that may make them good in one sense, but maybe difficult to work with? Uh, how do you deal with that when you're putting together the the, the crew of your movie and, and selecting material to work with? You know, with selecting... Or I guess with working with crew um, and working with your team, you know, when you're when you're prepping for a movie or when you're heavy in development, it's always different. You know, sometimes uh, you're working with a writer. Sometimes you're working with a writer team. Sometimes you have a producer available. Sometimes you don't. Um, so every project is kind of a different approach and you have to figure out the dynamic for that group. When you get a little bit closer to actual pre-production, which is the time right before you go into shoot a film and, and, you know, you might be in development with a writer for a year or two years on a project and then you secure the money and then you get greenlit and you have, you know, two months of pre-production where you're casting, where you're selecting locations, where you're doing whatever final rewrites you have on the script you know, there's, it's kind of hard to define the process of filmmaking because it's so multifaceted and it, it requires so many different skill sets. It seems like a military operation. You, it, you have an objective, yeah. you get to it whatever way you have to, and at the end of it, you've got the finished product and there you are. Yeah, that's <laughs> if you write sort a, of... If you write a book on it, you'd say, well, we had this plan over here This that went completely haywire and we had to go a different direction and personnel changed or something else popped up and, and you just adapt. Yeah, you know, you might be gearing up to shoot a big scene that you've mapped out meticulously in a certain location and then the location backs out and you lose it. And so then you're maybe that day you're not even shooting, you know, this is in the middle production, but maybe that day you're not even shooting the scene you initially thought you'd be shooting and you realize, well, I got four actors that are supposed to be in the original scene. Three of them are also in this scene and I can shoot it in the alley 
behind the place where I was supposed to shoot and shoot a version of that. It's a little bit of flying by the seat of your pants, you know? And at the end of the day, if you have a huge, huge budget and you have all the time in the world and you can shoot for six months on a, on a single film, it's a lot easier to get very uh, militant about what you want mm-hmm. and how you want it to happen and what you want to do. But when you're shooting a movie in a lot less time with a lot less budget, you know, and you're doing an independent film, like a truly independent film, you kind of have to roll with the punches to a degree because not everything's going to go according to plan. You might not get everything that you want. Um, But the trick is to take all of those constraints and figure out what your box is, you know, whatever that box is that you need to fit the system into. And then what do you care about? What do you not care about? And how do you fit it into that box? Got it. So you've made it to New York. You've got steady work, which sounds great. When did that light go on that that you could make a go of this? Uh, I've talked to a lot of artistic people who struggle and continue to struggle, and it it never quite works out for them. In a sense, I guess, and this is a terrible question to ask somebody, uh, especially in public, but when did you know you were good and could make this happen? Well... You know, that's that's a hard question to answer because it's – as an artist, um, I don't know if you ever truly believe that you're good, you know? And, and one of the ways that you do become a professional or you do become – that you do become successful at it is by questioning yourself. So you're always – you know, like when I'll put together a film, I'll look at it and whether it's a film or a, a branded video or whatever, I'll look at it and I'll say, OK, what are my problem areas? And then you start to massage those problem areas. And as you massage those problem areas, you know, whether it's a re-edit, a a color grade, some sort of sound design thing, sound effect, whatever it is, you start fixing the problem areas and you make them go away. As they go away, other problem areas start showing up. And so you just sort of continually are chipping away at whatever the weakest part of whatever project is. You know, you just keep chipping away at that until you end up with something that ideally won't have any weak parts, you know, won't have any any parts that lack in some way. You know, so I think that constant reevaluation of yourself, trying to objectively look at something that you have created uh, is something that makes you feel like maybe you've never, like you've never gotten to where you want to be. Right. You know, I hope at some point I can look at a film and say, I've made no concessions with this film and I got everything that I wanted. Um, and I, I feel like it was Oliver Stone said at one point, someone asked him, what is a perfect movie? And he said, a perfect movie is where I get 50% of what I see in my head on screen. And they were like, okay, well, what's the, I'm probably misquoting this, but if you've only gotten, you know, 50% of what you've ever wanted, you're a, a wildly successful filmmaker, you know, what's the highest percentage you ever got? And he said, maybe 10 and that's because, you know, you have a – you're looking at this page. You're creating this character. You're making this story. And there's so many elements that might not match up with how you kind of see this happening, you know. And it's like a location falls out from under you or, you know, you imagined this one actor in this role and you can't get them for whatever reason. Um, you know, wardrobe to hair and makeup to art department to, you know, to performance to script to music to editing, like all of those things, you have to sort of let go and and rely on your crew and the people around you to deliver the best that, you know, that everyone can do. And and the one thing that's really interesting about filmmaking is, you know, there are productions and and directors who do militant, you know, sort of work and they're like, oh, I want it exactly like this and only like this and I'll shoot this 80 times and 
if I don't get it exactly the way I want, I'm I'm just going to keep driving people into the ground. And then, you know, there's other filmmakers that are a lot more collaborative, you know, and rely on their department heads to basically do their jobs and provide input and come up with ideas and, and work collaborative. And I would like to think that I'm one of those filmmakers. You know, I, I feel like I'm really pragmatic because I came up in guerrilla filmmaking, making movies, you know, for zero dollars. And now that I have some level of budget that can support ideas that I come up with, I really can look at my uh, crew and say, what is the best thing that we can do? You know, if we can't do the car crash or the giant explosion because we don't have the budget for it or, or, you know, we can't secure the fire department to do this or whatever, um, the question becomes, what can we do that might be more interesting, more unique and will be successful, will be interesting, will be unique. And so I think you've got to kind of rely on on your crew in a way. I, I don't even really remember what your question was. Yeah, <laughs> so to go back to uh, some of your other work in the sort of the surfing videos and this SI swimsuit work, what, what did you take away from those experiences? Because uh, that seems to be a lot different than the horror movie motif, a lot sunnier, for instance, and maybe more beautiful, uh, picturesque uh, locations. What do you take from that as you build sort of the larger part of your career? You know, every project has a different sort of structure behind it, and I get pulled in a different way. The Sports Illustrated swimsuit stuff that I've done, I mean, really, there's a whole full-time staff that works on that project year-round. I mean, they start shooting almost immediately after the big premiere every winter. You know, I'd, I'd been working with them, basically editing for commercials for a while. And primarily, it's a team, a cinematographer and his wife, who's, who's a producer, and they're primarily the ones going out and shooting that material. They go to all the locations, they shoot it. And during the process of working on the commercials, I started to cut the show. They do an hour special every year. And so while we were working on the show, the three of us started collaborating on how we wanted to invent the show for that year. And so that was something where... I was like, well, what if the opening sequence was like this? What if the movement of the show is like this? Here's some questions that can kind of tell the story, not just the story of a beautiful girl in an exotic location, but the story of a fashion shoot. You know, what's it like to go to the Philippines and try to move an entire production? Like that was kind of what turned me on about the project was, you know, we're creating a fantasy, you know, but you start to peel away the layers of that fantasy and you start to look at, how does this actually get executed? You know, how do you get the photographer to that place? How do you get the girl to that place? How do you get the crew to that place with all the gear and all the stuff? You know, what pieces does it take to put together kind of that that idea of the perfect shot? And and swimsuit to me has always kind of represented a, you know, it's 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 a playful fantasy. You know, it's a summary fantasy. It's it, it always to me has resonated kind of. Um, almost innocent. I mean, obviously it's sexy, you know, and it's sexual and they're always pushing boundaries and always uh, surprising us with, you know, new, amazing photography. But to me, it's always kind of had that like summary fun, you know, fun feel. You but, know? but it's cool to see that, that in a sense, fashion is hard and that there are a lot of things that go into it. It's not for sissies frolicking around the beach. I wish I did it for a living, but I don't. <laughs> uh, but there's a lot that goes into it. And there are long nights and, and tough days and cold mm -hmm. shoots. And as you say, to create that illusion of fantasy, mm -hmm. that playful fantasy, 
uh, a lot of grouchy people behind that sometimes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and you know, I pushed a lot to kind of reveal those layers, you know, show how how tough it is, but then also show the result of the final creation of that fantasy. And I think that year, this is 2011, I think that year... They went to go shoot in the Philippines. You know, it rained like 12 days out of the 14 days they're there or whatever. You know, not the same thing as Francis Ford Coppola losing the helicopters in Apocalypse Now, hopefully. But uh. yeah, but but, you know, you're supposed to be shooting something else and then you kind of get what you get. Um, And and for the surfing material that I've done, it's kind of the same way, you know, uh, uh, the wait periods on a surf contest. And and again, I'm not I'm a freelancer, so I kind of jump from company to company. But, you know, I have a lot of friends who work for the Surf League, and basically they, you know, they, they have a window that's, say, 10 or 12 days long. And it's a window. They don't necessarily surf every day. Yeah, no, wave, no waves, no contest. Yeah, yeah, or the wind goes wrong and the winds get real, cho- you know, the waves get real choppy. Um, so, you know, they might have a two-week window, and they might only run the contest, you know, two days out of a, a 12-day window or something. Right. So the animation part of it with Team Tune, that's got to be a completely different mode to work in. Is that just a lot of blue screens? How is that different from the live action component? Team Tune was an interesting production because basically it's live action with animation. It's similar to Who Framed Roger Rabbit. It's 2D animation. Um, And, you know, I was primarily working on the live action element. So, you know, working with the the lead actors, working with my crew, my assistant director, my cinematographer, you know, working with them to to execute the live action component. The thing which helped on that show was knowing post-production because I work in both. Right. So I could know what would be really hard for the animators and what would be really easy. And so, you know, there were parts of those shows where we did green screen. I mean, obviously, they drive around in a car and that's all green screen. But primarily it was live action. And then it was just a matter of making sure, like, there's no glasses in front of where we need to animate something or there's no characters walking in front of the giant wall that we have to animate something on top of. How, how do you know about that? Did you just did you pick that up through your years of experience or was that something that the people in charge of animation said, look, we know when you're doing this, here's a list of things that we've got to avoid. I haven't worked heavily in animation. But I do know from my editing experience what becomes hard to, you know, rotoscope or mat or mask or anything like that. And so, you know, if you have a character walking in front of something that you need to put behind them, it gets really complicated because you have to go frame by frame and literally like paint it out frame by frame to get the layers right so that you can slide a a new image behind them. Um, So that... That process, I think, mainly came from my post-production, and then it was sort of a, a learning process as we went. You know, there were things that that we may have done in the earlier episodes that, when it got to animation, turned out to be really difficult, and then there were other things that turned out to be maybe not so difficult. So it's always a, it's a lot of collaboration. It's a lot of asking questions. It's a lot of, you know, discussions. There's certain discussions, if you're having them on the day of the shoot, can really kind of scuttle the whole thing. I was going to say, you could do, yeah. you could derail a whole project if you're fighting about one thing or the other to make sure that you've got something visible that the animators can work around. Yeah, you know, or, or you know, even just figuring out uh, the design of a creature. You know, mm-hmm. if you walk in and, and my idea is, okay, this, you know, uh, cyborg lizard is 30 feet tall and we haven't discussed that it is five feet tall and placed on top of a, an actor, 
it gets really kind of hard to approach that day. But that said, you know, you still have a page count to make. You still only have five and a half days or so per episode to shoot 20 minutes of material, of on-screen material. And, you know, you, you have to move through it. So let's go on to one of my favorite genres, which is horror. Which films and filmmakers really influenced you the most there? You know, um, I I do have to say this. I am, uh, I love horror. I think it's a great genre. Um, I don't like horror films which are are horror genre if that makes sense you know um i'm not a big slasher fan um i like more psychological i like more uh spooky ghost movies um i like things that that will make your skin crawl but not in a in a way that is just a surprise jump at you or a surprise flashy scare or or things that they feel kind of cheap in a way i mean if if you need to list filmmakers it's it's really hard because it's like there's so many filmmakers out there and so many, you know, places that you draw experience. It's really hard to kind of like. Well, and if you're looking at a at, at sort of a foreboding, uneasy feeling or just general, I guess, fear, you know, like the Silence of the Lambs mm-hmm. type of movie sounds like it would fall in, fall in what you're talking about a little bit, although it's a little bit gory and has some parlor tricks that it employs, but. Yeah, but things things that are a little more psychological, mm-hmm. you know. Um, I'm not necessarily interested in in you know the slasher chasing the girl through the woods, right? Because um, I, I feel like, yeah, it can make your skin crawl if it's really really weird um, or interesting or unique in some way. But there's such a, um, a genre built around horror, which is great that there's a big big audience for it. But it's not necessarily the kind of uh, the kind of work that draws me in. Sure. Um, well, and, that, and that's well, okay. You know, a uh, lot of, uh, a lot of the, there are formulas <laughs> and that's, yeah. and that, that's a problem sometimes. If there's a formula, you have to really come up with something neat and interesting in order to really distinguish it. And it sounds like you sort of look at it and that the psychological nuances are what distinguish things for you. Yeah. And I mean, the violence has to be there and the violence has to feel real. I guess what I'm speaking towards is some of the genre films where a guy swings an axe and he hits a zombie and the zombie's head like just explodes, you know, and it, right. it's sort of vile. It becomes cartoonish mm-hmm. in a way. And I would rather that axe, you know, that he swings hit the zombie and like land in the head as an axe would land in a head because that's more disturbing the more real it feels. Sure. You know, and the more realistic that violence is the more kind of traumatic and and emotive it becomes. And, you know, there are a numerous amount of movies uh, that that sort of explore that idea, even in in sort of zombie films. I mean, uh, one of the big influences for me was uh, Danny Boyle's 28 Days Later. And that film was like, I remember when I was gearing up to do uh, Rise of the Dead. And I was like, oh, okay, I'm going to like watch this movie and, you know, maybe steal some ideas or use it as some inspiration or uh, use it as a template for myself moving forward in this film. And then I watched it and I was like, wow, this this movie's just way smarter than me. I'm like, this this guy is so talented. Like, I can't execute this. There are scenes in that movie where I'm like, wow, this is so brilliant. Like, for instance, there's one character that gets introduced. I don't even know his name, but, you know, in the first 10 minutes, he tells this traumatic story about. I think it's his father getting filled with rage and they're trying to like buy money to get on a boat to get out. And then he sees his face change. And it's it's this story that really draws you in and really starts you start to like feel for this character because you know about his loss. 
And then, like, I hope I'm not giving anybody any spoilers on this film, but then two <laughs> scenes later, he gets a little nick on his arm from one of the zombies, and who you thought was his best friend just looks at him and hacks him up with a machete and immediately kills him. Because they know that little nick is what kills him. There's two things. One, that brutal reality is shocking. But the reason why that is so brutal and shocking is because you just met that character in a really intimate fashion. And in any other film, you would meet this character and you would live with them until the end of the film. And that reminds me of the Indianapolis speech in Jaws mm-hmm. that Robert Shaw uh, gives before the, the final uh, climax. And to me, I mean, I love the movie and there, I love a lot of the things about the movie, but the whole movie goes from two-dimensional to three-dimensional with that one little monologue because mm-hmm. this caricature that that was up on screen has suddenly suddenly there you understand why mm-hmm. and 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 then you know his ultimate demise feels you feel it even more and so it yeah. sounds like it's along those lines as well yeah but the 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 difference with that is you've you know you've lived with the captain for however long right. in that film um and you've seen him go after this shark for you know primarily most of the movie in 28 Days Later, this character actually, you know, you just were introduced to them in the first 20 minutes of the movie. And you think, oh, well, we're still establishing characters. We're still, like, learning where we are, where we're going. And as soon as that guy dies, the guy that you first started to get to know, you realize anybody can die at any moment. Oh, and so-, so it sort of rocks the rest of the movie with this idea that wait, I'm following this lead character who I think is the lead, but when he walks into this diner and there's something running behind him, like, he could actually get injured. You know, he could actually just be eliminated from this movie. Like, this is not like other movies you've seen. So it's a, a, bit, a little bit all bets are off. Uh, Scream used it. Mm-hmm. Psycho used it. Mm-hmm. Uh, where the the main character, you, you had preconceived notions and they've just been completely flipped on their head. Exactly. Exactly. It puts you on edge for the, for, you know, kind of the rest of the the story. So are there any particular actors or, or writers that you aspire to work with that you think would be a lot of fun? You know, and obviously it depends on the project and whether the person worked as the character, et cetera. But are, are there any people that you, you look at and say, geez, you know, I'd love for them to be in my movie. They just they just bring something to it. You know, uh, that's such a big question because all these people have always seemed so far out of reach, you know. Um, and I was actually I was in development on a film when we submitted to so many different talents. I think Peter Sarsgaard's really interesting. I would love to work with Ethan Hawke. Um, Gina Rodriguez is uh, is super, super talented. And actually, we had a film with her that we wanted to do for a while. You know, it 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 runs the whole gamut. And it, and it always depends on the story and, you know, the, uh, the, the project. You kind of, through working with a casting director, you go, okay, well, here's my 10 A-list ideas. Who do we have that's accessible for us? And, and again, like I work in a very guerrilla independent filmmaking world. Um, my budgets are not big. I can't get every actor in the world. I don't have the connections to just like cut straight to people. We got to go through agencies and things like that. You, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's sort of shooting into the sky in a way. And obviously I've had my credentials in my, in my films and, you know, they've been awarded and things like that. But, um, Sometimes it's it's hard to to just say like oh here's my ideal cast for any movie you know everybody's super busy you know and if they're a great great talent they're going to be super super busy a high class problem right <laughs> yeah exactly exactly so what are you working on now 
Uh, I'm actually in development on two projects. One's another horror film. It's sort of a big, bold action horror film, um, sort of a monsters in the basement with activists thing. It's almost like a, a revisit to almost like an alien movie, but with like surgical procedures and this sort of like really heavy, you know, told in this really heavy, bold, modern way. And then I also have a, a political drama that I'm working on, which actually, as we've been working on it, has gotten more and more timely. And especially with what's kind of going on right now in the climate, it seems to resonate almost stronger now than it even did two years ago. So, you know, there's uh, there's stuff in the works, but nothing's really ready to pop at the moment. So for people who want to keep in touch with your career, what's the best way to see your films and find out what you're up to? Probably Facebook is the best way. I share a lot of stuff on there. You can also go to my website, which is www.williamwedig.com. That's W-E-D-I-G.com. You know, that's that's really the best way. If you want to see my last film, it's called Forged. It's available on DVD on Netflix. Um, you could also see Team Tune on Netflix. The entire series is available there. And uh, as far as I know, Rise of the Dead is still kind of floating around. I think you can get it on DVD on Netflix and... I believe it used to still air on on Chiller TV, which is a, a sort of all horror movie channel. I I um, watch it all the time. It 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 sort of as you scroll through the guide, it it it's right near El Rey and a couple of the other ones. So the, yeah, I know that um, you know my my mom just loves the whole you know me being a filmmaker and all, all everything about it. So she. Uh, she emails me every so often. She's like, yeah, we got three more screenings. You know, she just does like a search on her on her cable box and finds stuff. Um, <laughs> it's a, a so lot it's, different than it was 10 or 15 years yeah, ago. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, that's that's kind of, that's the best way to find it. Terrific. William, thank you very much for being on. I, I learned a ton listening to you. <laughs> good, good. Well, thank you so much for having me. We've been speaking with William Wedig, filmmaker and connoisseur of all things gory. We have some great talent lined up, so keep checking back for future podcasts. And you can always find out what we're up to at FraserRice.com. Thanks again and have a great day.